Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. It is great to gather together. That, that has double implication in the time of COVID and coronavirus. We haven't been gathering, but also just recognizing that I'm usually in Indonesia, and so the chance to be able to be here uh, is definitely a treat for, for me. I see many, many faces, so I'm hoping that... Um, I'll get a chance at some point to meet a lot of you. Uh, I re- obviously recognize many of you, but there's many faces I don't. So let me just quickly introduce myself. Uh, my name is Jared Kessner. My family and I serve in Indonesia. Uh, you guys are, are sending church and have sent us out to there to work with a team there to reach uh, an unreached people group. Uh, now, for my day job there, I actually teach theology at a couple Bible schools, but I also then working with a mission uh, teammates there, national partners as well, and we're working to reach this unreached people group there that's, uh, while we're in Indonesia, we live uh, the, in the islands next to uh, Singapore, which is a different country, but um, we're focusing our, our efforts there in that, in that region. So it, it's great to be with you. Uh, we have uh, sovereign, God has sovereignly seen fit to bring us back to Virginia Beach. During this time, it's a little unusual because we've literally been here three months, and we're just now getting to actually see you guys. But we're all in this, uh, trying to figure out what this new normal is, so uh, thankful for that. Thankful that our theology is big enough for a coronavirus, that the gospel is good enough and big enough that, that yes, we are commanded to gather together, but it's not like somehow uh, God was... God's purposes in the church were thwarted because we had to do so electronically or in smaller groups. It's good enough. God's, our theology is big enough, so we rejoice in that. Uh, also, it's a little unusual to be saying thank you three months later, but because of the transition, our family was required to relocate quickly back to the Virginia Beach area, and you all played a big part in that, and so I want to make sure that I get this chance, even though it's three months belated, but I definitely want to say thanks because there's so many of you that made that transition so easy for us as a family, and we're very grateful for that. That's been uh, really helpful to us as a family to be able to have a place settled in, furnished, and ready to go. Uh, so it's three months late, but thank you so much for that. So we've sung about Jesus, and we've prayed about Jesus, and I would like to just take a few minutes to show us how the Word, particularly uh, some passages from the Old Testament here, point us to Jesus and can fuel our worship of Jesus Uh, So if you'd like to, go ahead and open to uh, the book of Judges, chapter 10 and 11. It may take you a minute or two to get there, because we don't often go there. But what I want to do is, while you're finding it in your Bibles, is actually bring us up to speed on where we are in the story of God by the time we get to Judges. Because, see, we don't just have history. I actually taught the the historical books uh, in two different schools this, this last semester. And what I'm communicating to my students is, This is not just interesting stuff. God didn't just decide, well, maybe someday people are going to be interested or or curious about this, and so I'm going to write it down just so they know. No, God is communicating to us theologically. He's trying to reveal himself to us. He's communicating a theological message to us by recording these events. So we want to listen to it on that, from that perspective. And we want to see how the Old Testament then is going to point us to Jesus. But there's this great narrative, this grand narrative that God is doing. He creates this world, and he starts saying, this is good. This is good. Everything's perfect. 
And yet quickly we see that humanity rebels against that. Whereas God is the one who pronounces what is good and says, this is good, and then provides rules. Like, this is what is in your best interest. Humanity says, no, I don't want that. I'm going to choose that myself. And then we have this implications, even till today. Even the coronavirus is, a, is an, an offshoot of that. God never wanted it to be this way. But it is because of the fall. But God has not left it alone. The ancient Near Easterners would have heard as they read this creation account, which was actually very common at that time in each of those civilizations. They each had their own creation account. But most of those gods set, up, set things up and then walked away. But what do we see in Genesis chapter 2? God is interacting with huma humanity. He's walking with them. And so what God has wanted to do, even from the beginning, is to shape a people for himself. So he sets up his kingdom He's interacting with humanity, and then there's this fall. And yet God still pursues walking with his people, forming that people. The people who walk with him are formed into his image and become like him because they're with him. So we see that with Noah, who walks with God. He fails, though. We see that then uh, after uh, many generations, we see the Tower of Babel. And these people are failing because they are united, but in opposition to God. They're wanting to choose to make a name for themselves and worship themselves as opposed to God. But God doesn't leave it there. He acts. He moves with Abraham. He says, hey, I'm going to do this with you. But it's not just for you. It's so that all nations in the world will be blessed through what I'm going to do in your family. And then he calls, and uh, later he calls Abraham, hey, walk with me. So what we've seen all through this narrative arc, in the, just in the first five books of the Bible, is God is creating this people for himself, and he wants to walk with them. By the time we get to the end of Deuteronomy, Moses has died. He's brought them to the brink of the promised land. And then we have Joshua. So it's Joshua starts after the death of Moses. Here's Joshua. And he leads his people in to conquer this land. Why? Why does God care about this? Is it, is it because he cares particularly about that little sliver of land? No, all of creation is his. But he has particular plans and promises that he's done, not just so that his people have nice things or have a comfortable life. But no, he's accomplishing a mission. He's accomplishing an objective. He is trying to restore all of creation through what he's doing. And so he acts through Joshua. Moses dies, Joshua comes on, on the scene. They conquer the land of Canaan, mostly. And so when you get to the book of Judges, at the very beginning it starts with, after the death of Joshua. So it's very much in light with these two books. Moses has died. Now Joshua has died. Now what's going to happen? And there's this leadership vacuum. What, what is God going to do? So one of those things that we see first, as we look at even just this, this huge narrative arc, by, by the time we get to Judges, we see that God's people need leadership. God's people need leaders. But if there's one thing about these leaders, uh, actually two things that are, that are stand out uh, particularly through the book of Judges, but also even up to the book of Judges, is all the leaders are going to fail and all of them are going to die. Have you ever thought about that? Like, even if you just look at that narrative arc, that itself points us to Jesus. Because Jesus never failed as a leader. And Jesus also, I would say he never died. He did die, but he didn't stay dead. All of these leaders, Moses died. Joshua dies. All of the leaders, the, the quest for leadership in the book of Judges is, is painted as this cycle of the people apostatize. They follow other gods. And so God gives them up to oppression by other and the enemies surrounding them. 
And then after some period of oppression, they cry out to God and say, God, save us. And so he acts. He raises up a deliverer. And that deliverer then saves them from these external enemies. But then what happens? He dies. And the cycle starts all over again. And so one of the major, major themes that you see all the way through, up even to this point, into the Old Testament, and then even beyond, you see that God's people need leadership, but God's people need leaders that don't die or don't stay dead. And so, brothers and sisters, I just invite you to worship Jesus today. Pointed to him from the Old Testament here, where we see he is our leader who accomplished, yes, our, our redemption, but he also didn't stay dead. And so he can live today to lead us in covenant faithfulness. So secondly, as you uh, get into, actually turn back to Judges chapter 10 real quick. We've gone through, uh, if you're looking at the book of Judges, you'll see that we've gone through a number of different cycles where different uh, deliverers have been raised up and God has delivered through them. And now we're kind of most of the way through the book, at least in terms of the main narrative cycles. And what we see is that this is a God who fights for his people. So if you look at Judges chapter 10, verses 6, so starting in verse 6, you see that there's this account of how the Israelites have gone away, they've forsaken God, and they've chosen to uh, do evil in the Lord's sight. They have worshipped, and there's this huge list of all the different gods from the surrounding nations that they have chosen to pursue. And interestingly enough, they are oppressed. God allows them to be oppressed. And what do they do as a response to that? They say, the Lord is furious with them. It turns them over. And they ruthlessly are oppressed, and then they suffer greatly, and they cry out to the Lord. And they don't actually even ask for deliverance. They just say, God, we have sinned. It's unique in the book of Judges, this point here, where two times, here and then in a couple verses later, they admit, we have sinned. And there's this hope that, oh, maybe they get it. Maybe they'll finally realize that this is, this is a cycle, and this is what's happening, and maybe they'll actually repent. But notice what God says. He just says, no, you've chosen to pursue these other gods. Go follow them. Go ask them for help. And clearly, they're not going to respond. They're clearly not going to help these people. But finally, it says the Lord, in the, at least in the Net Bible, finally the Lord grew tired of seeing Israel suffer so much. I think that's a, a good translation. Well, it's already clear from the book of Judges and even from this interaction here that the issue is not the external enemies. The real issue is the enemy of sin within our hearts, within the hearts of these people. And so God's, God is needed to come and fight the battle for his people, but not a battle just with external enemies, but a battle for that, with that internal enemy, the internal enemy of sin. And so the key here is, is walking in repentance. The, the issue at stake here is covenant faithfulness. Are they going to be faithful to their relationship with God, or are they going to pursue these other gods? And it's, it's demonstrated through the book of Judges that when they repent, when they call out to him, then God is going to act. And so we are left with this, this impression that God wants us to walk with him, and walk humbly with him. It's as if uh, he's almost anticipating Micah's refrain. This is what God wants of you. To love just, love God. Walk humbly before your God. Walk humbly with your God. Think about Adam and Noah and Abraham. They're walking with God and being shaped by him. 
So we walk humbly or walk in repentance. And so this passage is even calling us to repent. But remember that God has already fought this battle for us in Jesus. So one of the things that these people didn't have is a leader who was going to actually rescue them from that side of the equation. Not just from the external enemies, but the internal enemies of sin in their heart. And Jesus has fought that battle for us. So I invite you, again, to worship our Savior who has delivered us from that battle. He's fought that battle for us and won. Now let's turn into Judges chapter 11. This is the particular hero or judge or deliverer that God has raised up at this particular time. We find this guy named Jephthah. And he is a deal maker. He is a negotiator, a bargain driver. Notice three times he's making a deal. He's negotiating. First, he negotiates with the Gileadites, the the people of Gilead, or uh, I believe they're actually from the tribe of Gad on the east side of the Jordan. But as, as you look at the end of chapter 10, the Ammonites have come, and they're going to fight against Israel. And instead of turning to the Lord, the Gileadites look at each other and say, hey, man, who's going to do this thing? Who's going to help us? Who's going to stand up and fight? They're not asking the Lord. They're just not looking one to another like, hey, what's going to happen? Who's going to do this? And they remember of Jephthah. He has a checkered past, if you will. He's the son of a harlot. He's been driven out from his family. And they remember him and they say, hey, come on. Why don't you be our captain, if you will, like the head of our our army. Why don't you come and fight for us? And he's like, hey, wait a minute. You drove me out. You didn't want me to be around. What is it now? Why are you coming back turning to me? It's actually very similar to how the Israelites have interacted with, with Yahweh, with the Lord, earlier part in the chapter, in chapter 10. And they say, yeah, yeah, I know, but we really need you now. So why don't you come? In fact, if you come, I, we will not only make you the captain, but we'll make you the head of all our people. So they're like, they have to escalate. They're sweeten the deal, if you will. Okay. So he's like, all right, now, if you're going to do that, then I will come. And if the Lord gives me the Ammonites, if they give them the Ammonites into my hand, then I will become your captain and your leader. And that's what happens. And then they basically go to, uh, it says Mizpah here, and they essentially uh, confirm that, get his token uh, approval or uh, however you want to see that. So what we see is, is Jephthah here is, is a negotiator. And then we see this long history starting in verse 12 where the Ammonites come and he sends messengers to them and he begins negotiating with them too. And what we see here is that Jephthah actually knows his theological history. You'll see parts of this repeated in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 3 or Numbers 21 and following chapters. But this history is repeated. Jephthah knows it. He knows what God has done. He knows how God has acted, but ultimately, he's not able to, his negotiations with the king of Ammon are unsuccessful. They're disregarded, and so this, it looks like this battle is going to happen, and so then what, what happens? It says the spirit comes on him, and he begins to move around the countryside, gathering the troops of Israel. And he's, It says in verse 
29, the spirit empowered Jephthah. It came on him. He passed through Gilead and Manasseh and went to Mizpah in Gilead. And from there, he approached the Ammonites. So it looks like, okay, here it's going to happen. The battle's going to happen. He's going to address them and take them on. And yet, wait, the story is interrupted with this vow that Jephthah makes. He says, Jephthah makes a vow to the Lord saying, if you really do hand the Ammonites over to me, then whoever is first to come through the doors of my house to meet me when I return safely from fighting the Ammonites, he will belong to the Lord and I will offer him up as a burnt sacrifice. And then Jephthah approaches the Ammonites to fight with them. And in one half sentence it says, and the Lord handed them over to him. So we see that Jephthah has negotiated with the Gileadites. He's negotiated with the Ammonites. And now we see Jephthah negotiating with Yahweh, with God, saying, God, I'm going to try to coerce you. I'm trying to, going to try to twist your arm. Hey, I'll offer this sacrifice to you if you just act for us. But we already know from chapter 10 that that's not the issue. The issue is not that, that Yahweh has to be... Uh, coerced into acting or caring about his people. No, the issue is repentance. The Holy Spirit has already come up upon Jephthah here. And so there's no indication that, that somehow there, nothing, anything else is needed, that Jephthah somehow needs to twist God's arm to get him to act. And so this is a useless vow. But you can see this is his characteristic. This is what he does. He negotiates, even though it's not necessary. So a lot of people kind of go back and forth about this whole idea of like Jephthah's vow and whether he did it. I, I had really I had a lot of fun with my students this semester in Indonesia asking them, you know, was God pleased with this vow? And 80% of them, I, I wasn't able to keep track of everything, but 80% of them said, yeah, God was pleased with this vow because God likes it when we keep our vows. Unfortunately, that is not listening to the text here. Like, this is absolutely, to sacrifice your daughter or son or having participate in human sacrifice is abhorrent to the Lord. But it was very common in that day. In fact, that was a key practice for the Ammonites and the Moabites that would have been in the east side of the Jordan there. This is what was normal for them. Even if you think about Abraham and when God asks him to sacrifice his son, now, for us, that's repugnant. We, how could that happen? But, but quite honestly, that was very common in that day. That is what the gods asked. Now, obviously, the Lord is doing something quite different there, and he already has a plan. Uh, but that was, would have been very common in that day. Um, some people suggest that, you know, maybe he didn't actually sacrifice his daughter, but that he just let her remain a virgin, didn't allow her to marry until she died. But I don't think that really does justice to what this text is saying here. So we're wrestling with, you know, why, how, what is this? And it's because this is common for the societies, the civilizations around them. And this is one of the reasons that God told them, no, you're not supposed to do this because you're supposed to become a light to the Gentiles. You're supposed to show all the other nations the blessings that come. God doesn't require this of his people. So one, this brings me to my third point about Jephthah here, is that... Um, while that was his, seems to be his nature and his, his impulse, his natural, his default is to bargain and negotiate, we don't need to bargain with God. Let me just tell you, we already have the greatest deal we could ever get. Jesus already made a bargain with God. 
if you want to say it that way. Jesus didn't try to coerce God into acting. No, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, and he went to the cross, and he accomplished our redemption. We already have the greatest bargain, the greatest deal we could ever negotiate. We don't have to twist God's arm to get him to act. No, he is for us in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, rejoice with me that we don't have a God who doesn't care or needs to be coerced into acting. No, he's for us in Jesus. We can't get anything better. So instead of somebody like Jephthah, who mixes practices, who has got all of his thinking confused and thinks that this would be something that God would want, we have Jesus, who knows exactly what God wants and submits to that and becomes that leader who accomplishes our redemption. This actually brings me to my final point. I, this is more of a word of warning to us as Christians, uh, particularly even for myself. I have several theology degrees. Uh, I enjoy the study of the text. But what we see in the life of Jephthah is someone who knows his theological history. He even You could even say he knows his theology and it didn't do him any good because he was so profoundly shaped by the world around him that he, he didn't do that which was pleasing to God. We can know our theology and still be more impacted by the culture around us so my, my challenge and my, my desire for all of us is to just recognize that the world around us is shaping us. The influences that, that are around us are shaping us. So think about it. If we look at how we spend our time and our money and our energy, yes, we, we all understand what we're doing here. We're, we're wanting to be a people who walk with God, and so we come, we gather to praise uh, Jesus, for what he has done for us, and to hear of his truth, and, and to be shaped by that. But when we look at how we spend the rest of our time, the rest of our week, Monday through Saturday, even the rest of Sunday maybe, you know, are we more shaped by those functional gods and what they require, and what's important to them than our God? For example, uh, what are the functional gods that we are serving? What the... the the God of, of sex or money or power, status, fame, health, fitness, or even like your body image. Like all of these things are gods to this culture. And are we being actually shaped by them? Or are we being people who not only know the, the word, but walk with God through Jesus and are shaped to be like him because we're with him, because we're following the word? I want to be really careful how I say this because I know there's a lot of different opinions on this, but we've been studying in Ephesians chapter 2 about what Jesus has done for us, what he has accomplished in his redemption. And so when it says that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall in that context between Jew and Gentile, but applicable for, a con for everybody in the sense that now there is no division, you're either in Christ or you're not. And he's broken down that wall of hostility. He's made us into this new people. 
then I would put that together with Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 where you see this grand throne scene where all of people, all these peoples from every tribe and tongue and nation are gathered before God. And yes, I mean, I'm a missionary and that's a missional text, yes, but it's also proof that God is going to pull it off. He is going to gather a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. He's going to do it. We are probably not going to be able to do it in and of ourselves, but at the end, Jesus is going to pull it off. And so what I would suggest is that we are in Christ. I, to, I, I love what Chris said a couple weeks ago. Like the only true and lasting hope for race relations and the tensions that are even existing among us now in America, the only true and lasting hope is going to come through Jesus. But because we are reconciled to God, we are reconciled to one another, we should be more shaped by that narrative than the narrative of our own upbringing. So I would just say we should be on the forefront as Christians who have already been reconciled to God, who know what it's like and how to be reconciled one with another. We should be on the forefront of asking questions, learning, listening, and trying to uh, do something. At least be part of the conversation for how this is played out, how we even see some of these, these issues resolved. We don't want to be shaped just by what's happening or by the New York Times or you know, the Washington Post or Fox News or CNN or whatever. We want to be shaped by the word. So let us be people who walk humbly with our God, rejoicing in our Savior Jesus for all he has done and be shaped by that relationship. Let's pray. Jesus, as we look at the Old Testament, it points us to you and it shows us how great a leader we have. It reveals to us just the, even the, the offices that you fulfill in a pro, being a prophet and a priest and a king and developing that fully in the Old Testament. And so that when we see that fully expressed in Jesus, we rejoice, we worship you, and we, we love that. And we just see how good we have it in Jesus. We're not waiting for the good life. We have the good life in Jesus. And I pray that you would not let us be shaped by the culture around us, but that we would be shaped uh, through your word because we walk humbly with you as our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.